0: I want to ask you a question this morning. It's a personal question. Uh, it's a hard question, and it's probably one that's hard to, ask, to answer honestly. Um, have you ever felt like God is against you? Uh, I don't know all of your stories, but maybe uh, you had one of those childhoods where you watched your mom and dad where th- that you loved deeply separate and divorce Uh, Maybe uh, there was a death in the family that um, you didn't understand. Uh, Maybe you have abuse in your past or you've experienced uh, a friend or a family member that has walked through that or is walking through that and the grief of that. Maybe you've lost a child or a spouse, a friend. Maybe you're going through a chronic medical issue. Uh, the afflictions of life, the challenges. Uh, maybe you're here and you're you're dealing with overwhelming relationship pain, and in the midst of that, you begin wondering: Is God for me? Um, is He against me? It, it feels like He's doing these things to me. And this is a significant question as we come to our text today, because. It's really hard to trust God if you don't think he's for you. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. It's really hard to love God if it feels like he's against you. One of the things I love about Scripture is how honest it is about the challenges of life. And maybe you've noticed this too as you're reading through your Bible. um, Many men and women of faith in the Bible felt just like that at times, that, that God was against them, that, that he was afflicting them unjustly in some way. Uh, we think about guys like Abraham and Moses. We think about the psalmist. We think about many of the prophets who, uh, in our inspired Bibles, you know, cataloged right there via the Holy Spirit, we see went through some of these same experiences. Is God for me? Is he against me? Uh, the man that comes to mind when I think about that is uh, Job. And how after he lost his ten children and then lost his health and his livelihood and it appeared that his wife was even turning against him at one point and he asked these questions in his grief. What is God doing? Is he against me? Why is he against me? It sure feels like it. You know, If you had moments like that where what you learned in Sunday school and what happens in your life just collide and you're going, I know scripture says this but it sure doesn't feel like it. Well, over the past year, um, just in my Bible, my personal Bible reading plan, usually I'm using a a Bible reading plan. I hope all of you are doing something like that too. Uh, I focused on one particular book in the Bible because I wanted to get to know this man in scripture better. Um, This was a man who felt regularly like God was against him. He was a prophet. Uh, He was called by God to be his personal spokesman to the nation of Judah during a very, very difficult time in Israel's history. This man preached faithfully for over 40 years. And you know what happened? No one listened. No one heeded the message. No one repented. No one turned to God. In in fact, at the end of his ministry, you can read at at the end of the book, uh, they were still questioning whether he was a real prophet of God. They were still arguing with him about that. In fact, they mocked him. They made fun of him. They arrested him. They plotted his murder. They threw him into a pit and left him there to die. And thankfully, he was rescued out of that. But for four generations, he was faithful to preach God's message in the midst of the persecution from God's people who did not want to listen. So, how did his ministry end? Babylon comes in, destroys the city, destroys the temple, kills a bunch of people, and carries the rest off to captivity. The end. Imagine what that was like. If that's how your ministry ended, the questions that would raise in your mind. How would you feel if that was the conclusion of your ministry? And as as the city burned, as the temple was reduced to ruins, as God's people were slaughtered in the streets, and thousands more carried off to Babylon, the prophet picked up his pen, and he writes five poems of lament. What he writes is a it's a funeral song for the city of Jerusalem. We can picture this man watching Jerusalem burning on fire, bodies laying everywhere, people being hauled off, and he writes in his grief, in his sadness, these five inspired laments. You know the prophet's name, don't you? What's his name? Jeremiah. What's his nickname? The weeping prophet. And we understand why? Well, I'd love for you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations, uh, if you're not sure quite where that is, it may not be a, uh, an obvious book there, just turn to the, the middle of your Bible, that'll probably be the book of Psalms, just turn to the right, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. These are the five inspired poems of lament over the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, we need to get a little bit of a running start before we get to our section in chapter three. So, look with me at Lamentations chapter one and verse one. Lamentations chapter one, verse one. Jeremiah writes, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. In fact, that's the actual name in Hebrew. It's how, like how did this happen? How do we get here? How the lonely city how lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow. Who was once great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a has become a forced laborer. She weeps bitterly in the night and her te- her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her. Among all her lovers, all her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile under affliction and under harsh servitude. She dwells among the nations, but she has found no rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads of Zion are in mourning because no one comes to the appointed feasts. All her gates are desolate, her priests are groaning, her virgins are afflicted, and she herself is bitter. Her adversaries, verse 5, have become her masters, her enemies prosper. For the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. Listen to this. Her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversary. Can you picture Jeremiah spends four decades. He gets to know a lot of the people, even the little little ones, the children that he preached and prayed for. Now he sees these kindergartners being hauled off to Babylon, And he he says, look down at verse 16, his eyes just filled with tears and grief. Chapter 1 verse 16, for these things I weep, my eyes run down with water, because far from me is a comforter. One who restores my soul. My children, meaning the nation of Israel, are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. And he talks about his tears and just overwhelming grief and crying in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He talks about it again uh, later on in chapter 3, verses 48 to 51. But look with me at chapter 2. Verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19. Just to give you a sense of how bad this was and the extent of his grief as he watched this calamity. Chapter 2, verse 19, he writes Arise, cry aloud in the night, at the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord, lift up your hands to him for the life of your little ones who are faint because of hunger at the head of every street. We can imagine as the Babylonians came in in three different waves and the people were killed or or hauled off. It it cuts off the food supply. People are starving. Children are starving in the streets, but that's not the worst of it. Look at verse 20. See, O Lord, and look, with whom have you dealt thus? Should Should women eat their offspring, the little ones who were born healthy? That's how bad it was, guys. It got to the point where families were consuming even their own children as a horrible means of trying to survive. And Mr. Jeremiah is watching all this. He's grieving. He's overwhelmed with sorrow. He he, he can't believe what he's seeing. Now, he knew the people were rebellious. He knew that God had warned them in judgment. That was his message. And now it's coming to pass, and as he watches it, even though he knew it was coming, he is overwhelmed with sorrow. How would you feel in a situation like that? He begins to question, in his grief and his sorrow, God's intentions toward him. Now, way back in the book of Jeremiah, in chapter one, God had called him to ministry and assured him two times, I am with you to deliver you. That was God's promise. But as Jeremiah is looking out at the city, he's going, It sure doesn't feel like it. It sure doesn't look like it. What must have been going through his mind in his grief? We, we can imagine Jeremiah felt like a failure. I, did, I tried for 40 years, and this is what happened. I blew it. I didn't preach hard enough or long enough or clear enough. Maybe he felt like he let God down, and, and now God is punishing him. And, and in the midst of his grief, in the midst of his sorrow, he begins to question God's intent toward him. And we'll pick it up now in chapter 3, verse 1. Jeremiah writes, I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath, He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. And even when I cry out, and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. Who's Jeremiah talking about here? He's talking about God. He's saying, God is against me. God is afflicting me. God is not listening to my prayer. God is breaking my bones. God is besieged and encompassed me and walling me in, making my chain heavy. He's, verse nine, he's blocked my ways with hewn stone. He's made my path crooked. You You know what this sounds like? Depression. This is the experience of depression and despair, uh, common in the prophets and, and the Psalms at times. I've had people in my office as I'm trying to provide pastoral care and counseling and people going through hard things and they're voicing these same things in their depression. It feels like God has me in a box and I'm stuck and I can't get out. It's all darkness, it's not light. It feels like you know, I'm crying out to God and, and he's not listening. He doesn't care. Look at this, verse 10. Verse 10. He, God, is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and has torn me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He's bent his bow and set me as the target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. You, You get the picture? God is becoming in his mind an enemy. He's like a bear or a lion lying awake to pounce out and and devour him. He's like an archer and and Jeremiah is the target for his arrows and he's shooting arrows at Jeremiah. He says, Lord, what are you doing? Verse 14, he says, I've become a laughing stock to all my people. They're mocking song all day long. If you were to tune into the ancient Near Eastern Spotify channel, you know what you'd hear? Songs the people were making up mocking the prophet of God as he would come into the city to bring God's message Verse 15 he has filled me with bitterness, he's made me drunk with wormwood, he has broken my teeth with gravel, he's physically afflicted, he has made me cower in the dust in fear, my soul has been rejected from peace. Jeremiah says this here's the bottom line I have forgotten happiness. So I say, My strength has perished, and so has my help, my hope, from the Lord. You ever been there? You ever been in such a dark place, overwhelming sorrow, overwhelming grief, difficult despair that that you can't even remember what it was like to be happy? That you've lost all semblance of hope? That's where Mr. Jeremiah is. Now, I want to ask you a question. How is Jeremiah interpreting God's actions here? Think about this with you. How is he interpreting God's actions In his sorrow, in his emotion, in his grief, he's interpreting God's discipline as God being personally against him. Do you see that? It's like God has become this Marvel comic monster that's out to get him and and destroy him and annihilate him. And and I think that leads us to our first point as we think about when when it feels like God is against us. Here's our first point. Be careful how you interpret God in your difficulty. Be careful how you interpret God in your difficulty. See, we are most vulnerable to misinterpret the character of God when we're going through grief and emotion and sorrow like we see here. When life is difficult, we are easily tempted to misinterpret and misrepresent the character of God. Now, how's this supposed to work? The the way life is supposed to work is we take what we know in God's word, what we know about God and his promises and his character, and we use that to interpret life, right? That's how we're supposed to do it. But in our grief and in our sorrow, sometimes we flip that around and we start interpreting God through the lens of our pain. We start interpreting God through the lens of our sorrow and other emotions. And what ends up is God distorts. We end up making a God of our own image, Strong emotion plus severe difficulty often leads us to interpret God through the lens of our circumstances and emotions. You've said it, I've said it, it just feels like God is blank, right? That's what we do. So we need to be really careful because we're vulnerable. Uh, We need to be really careful how we interpret God in our difficulties and in our circumstances. See, Jeremiah is in trouble, He's not in a good place here. God's a monster out to get him. He's overwhelmed with sorrow and grief. He says, I can't remember what it's like to be happy and I've lost my hope in the Lord. And then, watch this. Look back at the text. Verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind and therefore I have hope. And we say, whoa, wait a minute. At the end of verse 17 and 18, he says, I have have no hope. I've lost strength. I I have no hope in this. And then something happens and he says, I got my hope back. And, And so we say, Mr. Jeremiah, what did you remember? What was it that you recalled to mind that brought your hope back? And this is where the whole poem turns. This is the hinge of chapter three. And I think in the verses that follow, we will see six pursuits Uh, Practice six pursuits when it feels like God is against you. We're going to watch Jeremiah turn a corner here and pursue God in his grief and in his sorrow. We'll call this six pursuits when it feels like God is against you. Look with me at the first pursuit. Number one, actively remember God's never-changing character. Actively remember God's never-changing character. Look with me at verse 21, please. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Okay, so he, he remembered something and it brought hope. What did he remember? L- look with me at the next verse. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And yes, that's where we get the hymn from. See, so what he rem- you almost get the sense he's in his grief, he's lost hope, and then it's like he just goes, wait a minute. What am I doing? And he sort of grabs himself by the collar and says, that's not who God is. That's not the God that I know. And he begins to rehearse what he learned in Sunday school. He begins to rehearse the character and nature of God that he's known from his childhood. Notice the attributes he mentions here. He recalls God's loving kindness. You know that word. It means loyal love. He has this reliable, trustworthy care and love. And he says that that steadfast love never ceases. It's never ending. His compassions, that word means God's mercies, his, his disposition to show us care. He says those mercies, those compassions, they never fail. They never let us down. And the word faithfulness there, that God is faithful, he's trustworthy, he's reliable. He says we can rely on God, how many days? Every day, it's new every morning. No matter how bad things get, no matter how dark the day is, every morning is faithfulness that we can cling to. He says great is that faithfulness, it's new every morning. You know what this reminds us of? Our feelings are, lie to us about really important things. Have you noticed this? Your feelings are liars. I hate to break it to you, but that's what happens. In our grief and our sorrow, we begin to interpret God into the, into the image that's coming to mind as we experience these feelings, and we might think of it like this, that our feelings are actually blasphemous artists in the pictures of God that they paint, and that's what's going on here. That's what's happened to Jeremiah. And he's beginning, with God's grace and help, to pull himself out of that. But God was a monster. And then he begins to remember who God is and recollect and remember. And this is so important, guys. Everything changes when we begin to remember the character and nature of promises of God and remind ourselves and share those things with our own hearts. Now, now think with me for a minute has anything changed in Jeremiah's circumstances? Anything changed? Babylonians are still coming in. Jerusalem's still burning. People, bodies laying in the streets. Nothing has changed. But Jeremiah's soul is changing. Can you see that? His optimism is changing. His hope is changing. Why? Because he's remembering who his God really is. See, hope is not based on optimistic circumstances, but on the certainty of an ever faithful God. God. That's what we need to remember. That's the first pursuit. Actively remember God. When you feel like God is against you, actively remember God's never-changing character. Let's look at the second pursuit. A second pursuit. When you feel like God is against you, we're, we're eavesdropping, right? We're looking over the shoulder of Mr. Jeremiah. He's, he's sharing with us in an autobiographical way. What did he go through? And, and, and our, our goal here is to learn from that and to apply that to our own experiences. So here's the second thing that we learned from Jeremiah. Engage God by talking to him, not just about him. Engage God by talking to him, not just about him. Look back at verse 23. They are new every morning. Great is, what's the next word? Your faithfulness. You say, what's up with that? It's significant. The whole chapter, he's been talking about God as he, him, right? Look back at chapter 3, verse 2, he's driven me. Verse 3, surely he has turned against me. Verse 4, he has caused. Verse 5, he has besieged. Verse 7, he's walled, right? You get it? He's talking about God. But in verse 23, something happens. He turns from talking about God to talking to him. And that is so significant. When you're reading your Bible, Look especially in the psalms, the hinge of the psalm or where the song often turns when the psalmist is in a difficult place and then by the end of the psalm, he's hoping in God, he's trusting in God again. Often the hinge of the psalm is when the psalmist stops talking about God and begins talking to him. Wonderful things happen, brothers and sisters, in our hearts when instead of thinking about God and talking about him and all that, we move toward him. We begin a conversation with him. We talk to him and that's what Jeremiah is doing here. Something changes when he begins to talk to God. You know, now we see this in human relationships too, don't we? When, you're, when you have some struggle with another person and you just you make the problem worse by talking about the person or talking to others or just kind of musing, but you move toward reconciliation when you go and try to work it out with that person and talk it out with that person. And the same thing is true here with God, that that we move toward God in terms of our own hope, not by talking about him, but by talking to him. Um, And you know the reality is, When you're where Jeremiah has been, when you're in grief, when you're in sorrow, when you feel like God is against you, when you feel like He's out to get you, and He's just He's finding joy and afflicting you for some reason—it's some you know cosmic uh, you know game of 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 affliction in your life—or right—that's the that's the last time in the world you want to go talk to God. But 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 listen, when we feel like talking to God the least, that's when we need to talk with God the most. And Jeremiah is helping us to see that here. We need to turn to him, not away from him. And, and just a footnote on this um, you don't have to feel like you have to go kind of clean up your emotions before you go talk to God. Uh, we, we have any moms or dads of small children here? Toddlers? Okay, toddlers. We're, we're, raise them high, be proud. Okay, great, awesome, okay. Well, let me ask you this, when your three-year-old wants to talk to you about something, does he say, I want to talk to my mother today, I'm going to go put on my best clothes, I'm going to shine my shoes, you know, make sure I look good, and then I'm like, is that how it works? No, when he falls off his bike, it's mom, you know, and, and they run at you, and he's sobbing and crying, and you're getting, you know, snot all over you, it's a mom thing, right? And, and what do you do? Do you go, oh, well, you're not very presentable to talk to your mom. No, no parent does that. We embrace it. We embrace the snot. We embrace the tears because it's our son. It's our daughter. We love him. And that, that's what we're seeing. We, we can go to God in the rawness of our emotion. And as his children, he embraces us. He cares for us. He ministers to us. When you feel like God is against you, don't run away from him. Talk to him. Go to him. So when it feels like God is against you, actively remember God's never-changing character. Engage God by talking to him, not just about him. Number three, here's the third pursuit. Claim God himself as your highest possession. Claim God himself as your highest possession. Look at verse 24 with me. The Lord, Yahweh, is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. I, I-, I love this. Um, as he's talking to God, we, we get the sense he's not just talking to God, engaging God, but what else is he doing? He's talking to himself. He's starting to preach to himself. He's saying, the Lord is my portion. Uh, there's this wonderful line in uh, Martin lloyd Jones's book called Spiritual Depression. Some of you may have read it. He's talking about Psalm 42 and, and he says, um, Lloyd-Jones says this, do you not realize that most of your unhappiness of life... Is because you're listening to, se- to yourself instead of talking to yourself. It's like <laughs> that's so good. It's been in the Bible the whole time, right? Illustrated in Psalm 42, and illustrated right here. Uh, we need to preach truth to ourselves. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. You see, he's talking to himself. He's preaching to his own soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Now, now what is this idea of a portion? The Lord is my portion. Well, you remember way, way back in the Old Testament that God promised his people some land. And as Joshua and others led uh, the Israelites into the land, they began to divide up the land as people were conquered. And, you know, each tribe got a portion of the real estate. You you remember how this this happened? But there was was one family that God says, you're not getting any land. Do you remember this? It was the Levites. The, The Levites were... Uh, the, the family that was called by God to be engaged in the priestly service. These were the, the priests, the rabbis, the religious leaders came from the Levites. And God says, no land for you, no real estate for you. You say, why is that? That doesn't seem fair. He's, God says this, because I myself will be your portion. The Lord will be the portion for the Israelites. And, and, and what he meant by that is that God is the highest good. He, he is better than real estate. He's better than geography. He's better than anything else. To have him, to prize him, to value him is the best thing any of us can have. And as the Old Testament develops, that that idea of portion, that that, that picture became a bit of a metaphor for this idea that what we as believers need most of all, that the most wonderful thing we can have is God himself. I mean, if you have God, you have everything. Everything. And so that's what he means here. He's saying, you know, I'm watching my city burn. I'm, my people that I love are dying and being carried off. And, and in his grief and his sorrow, it's loss, it's lost, it's lost. But in the middle of that, he remembers, wait a minute. But I still have the most important thing I can have. The Lord is my portion. I still have God. Now, I've noticed, um, even though we all would agree with that, w- would, you, would you be honest enough to say that even though we know God is the best thing we have, sometimes we act like that's not true? Sometimes we can let other things displace God as our highest good. We see that with our kids, we see that with health, we see that with, you know, loss of good gifts, and, and we ought to grieve and mourn over those things. But if we're not careful, we, we begin to sort of reimagine God when, when other things displace God, like health or obedient children or, or something like that, we, we tend to sort of morph God into a deity that should give us those things. In other words, we make God into our own image based on what we're worshiping and what we're wanting and... And yet what Jeremiah is helping us to see is that hope comes from realizing that God is our greatest possession. If we have him, we have hope. Um, We think of the psalm that says, if God God is for us, right, uh, who is against us? Um, So... We want want to see that hope comes from prizing God and recognizing God as our highest good. See, what we need to do, we, we need to hitch the wagon of our hope to something more reliable than our circumstances. We want to connect our hope, build our hope upon a foundation that can never be shaken, never be removed, and that is the Lord himself. Now, let me give you a quick footnote here. Jeremiah's message for those 40 years of ministry was that Yahweh, God, is supreme and that having him, knowing him, loving him supremely is our highest good. And, and you know, judgment was threatened to the nation of Israel and finally came to pass because God's people had replaced him with worshiping other things and other idols. It was an act of spiritual treason. And that you know what? That's not just the message of Jeremiah or the prophets, That's the message of the whole Bible. This is not just true of the Israelites. This is true of all humanity, that all of us in our sin have turned away from worshiping the true God and we replace him by making a God of our own making. Romans chapter one talks about that progression. All human beings are guilty of this same treason and the penalty for that replacement of God and turning away from God is not invasion by the Babylonians. It is ultimately eternal condemnation and punishment. This is the plight of all humanity. And if we read the book of Jeremiah, we recognize that in the midst of announcing judgment and calling people to repentance, there was hope. And the hope was, like for example, in in the book of Jeremiah chapter 23, that God would send a righteous branch, a Messiah, A a savior, a rescuer who would come and rescue the people from this false idolatry. And then he goes on in chapter 31 to describe something called the new covenant, this new arrangement. It's it's sort of, we can think of it as the gospel in Old Testament clothing. And and in that new provision, God would give them a new heart and his own Holy Spirit and and work so that they would walk in his ways. And of course, as Revelation unfolds, we know that that Messiah, that righteous branch, that new covenant comes through the person and work of Jesus. And and the message of Scripture is that we can be restored to God. We can have our sins forgiven. We, We can have a friendship with God through faith alone in Christ alone. Now, what does this have to do with Jeremiah? Well, it may be that the reason it feels like God is against you is because he is. God is not for you outside of Christ. God is against our sin, he's against our wickedness and he will bring us to judgment apart from the person and work of Christ. It's only the one who's leaning on Christ's sufficiency. Uh, We talked about it uh, in the, or we sang about it in the songs, we remembered it in communion. This is the cup of the new covenant through the death and resurrection of Jesus that that that's our only hope. And listen to me, it is only through repentant faith in Jesus that God will go from being your enemy to being your friend. And that that is the hope of the Christian gospel message, that that God begins against us because of our sin, but through faith in Christ, we can come into his family so that he is for us. He is our God and he is our Savior. We need to remember that. We, We all need that provision through the person and work of Jesus. So Jeremiah's challenge here, as we're thinking about how he's going, he's allowed his emotions and experiences to reimagine God into this Marvel comic monster who's out to get him, but he's coming around, isn't he? He, He's turning to God, he's remembering God's character, he's talking to God instead of moving away from him, he's remembering that God is his greatest good. Let's look at a, a fourth pursuit when you feel like God is against you. Number four, we need to seek God and wait for him with a quiet heart. Seek God, and wait for him with a quiet heart. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent, since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled With reproach. I know that's a little bit confusing. So, what's going on here? You can't see it in the English, but each verse in this stanza starts with the word good. It's good, good, good. You may recall that Lamentations is largely a series of acrostic poems, meaning poems that follow the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And we've gotten to the stanza, stanza that starts with the letter for the word good. And it's good, good, good. And that's emphasizing something. That's saying, wait a minute. God in this verse is emphasizing that we need to reframe or rethink how we're thinking about goodness. You say, what do you mean? Well, when it, it feels like God is against us, often because we forget or we redefine what is actually good. Look back at the text. What does God say is good? It is good for us to wait. Now be honest, do you like to wait? When Amazon is late, are you excited? When UPS doesn't show up when they're supposed to, do you go, yippee? Uh, one, one of my teenagers ordered something. Uh, it was a kit they were building and uh, it was supposed to be out there on Monday and then you know, Tuesday came around and then Wednesday and, and finally we, we, we live in a small town. We know our, our postmaster at our local post office so I went and talked to her and they did some research and it literally was on a carousel in Fort Worth. It was going in and out, in and out, you know, out scan, in scan, out scan, in scan, and, you know, and, and, and you know, my teenager in that moment didn't say, wow, this is a great opportunity for me to grow in my sanctification. And you know what? That's not how we react either typically, is it? Which is why we need this verse. God is saying in three emphasized words, it's highlighting it for us in the text, it's actually good for us to wait it's good for us to wait. You say, why is that? I, I, that that's, that's challenging. Why is it good for us to wait? It is good to accept the circumstances that God has brought without complaining, with a quiet, trusting heart. It is good for us to accept and submit to even the hard things. Jeremiah mentions here things like a yoke and a smiter and reproach. He's saying, it is good for us to have a quiet heart, to trust God, to wait on his timing, and to submit to what his plan is, even if it's painful. You say, why is that? Because the reality is God does some of his best work in us when all we can do is seek him and wait in hopeful expectation that he will act in his wise time and way. Sometimes, guys, God brings us to the end of our resources So that all we can do is wait on him. You say, why is that? Because that's what he wants. What is the end of all this? That we would lean wholly and only on our beloved, as John Newton would say. That we would fully embrace and lean on Christ and his sufficiency and not ourselves. And that's what he's doing. In our waiting, he's wooing us to lean on him more when there's nothing else we can do. Now, waiting doesn't mean we do nothing. It, it means we seek God, we quiet our hearts, we accept the circumstances that we are in with, with confidence and hope that he will work in time. And we see Jeremiah doing that. He's learning to wait on God. He's learning to see his waiting is good for him. Uh, some of you may remember years ago the, the Christian film called Fireproof. You remember that? And um, there was a, a, one of the soundtracks in there was a song called While I'm Waiting, by a guy named John Waller. And I love that song, because the, the, the theme of the song, the lyrics of the song are basically, while I'm waiting for whatever it is I want God to do, I'm not gonna sit around, I'm gonna worship, I'm gonna serve, I'm gonna move toward God. And that's what we see Jeremiah doing here. In his waiting, in, in his sorrow, he's moving toward God. He's, he's worshiping, he's recalling, he's hoping, he's talking to God. And that's exactly what we need to do when it feels like God is against us, is seek God and wait for him with that quiet heart. Well, there's a fifth pursuit. A fifth pursuit. When it feels like God is against you, what should you do? Number five, trust that God will honor his word even in hopeless circumstances. Trust that God will honor his word even in hopeless circumstances. Look with me at verse 31. For the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. There's that word again. See, these verses remind us that God is always faithful to his word, even when it doesn't seem like it. When, when the Sunday school lesson you know and the experience of life collide and you're tempted to abandon what you know about God, you, we, we need this verse. God will always do what he promises to do. He will always be consistent with his character. In fact, he's incapable of acting otherwise. He's unchanging, the scriptures tell us. God has promised to his people, the Israelites, that after his discipline, this is part of Jeremiah's uh, uh, prophecy, after his discipline and judgment, he would again show the Israelites compassion. He would restore them. He would bring them back to the land. He would not reject them forever. And the proof is that little word again, hesed, right? We saw it earlier. God's loving kindness, his faithful love, his loyal, steadfast kindness, that's who God is. And, and, and you know, this reminds us, brothers and sisters, is, is this not what we say when we say it's about faith in God? Isn't that what this is? It, faith is simply trusting God's word and character instead of your feelings and circumstances. That's, that's faith. It's trusting God's word and character instead of your feelings and circumstances. And that is what God is calling us to exercise. When, when it seems hopeless, when it seems like it's not happening, God says, Just trust me. Remember, I'm full of that loving kindness, that steadfast, faithful love. I ask you another question. As you think about your own difficult circumstances, what promises or truths about God are you tempted to doubt? Are you tempted to disbelieve? That's an important question. What am I tempted to disbelieve about God's character, his word, his promises? What does my affliction pull me away from in terms of believing those things? And what passages might help you to remember that God is true, that his promises are faithful? Let me give you a few of them. We have wonderful promises we can remember in Scripture as as we have the whole canon of the Bible, the New Testament as well as the old. Promises like this, I will never leave you or forsake you. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. No good thing does he withhold to him who walks uprightly. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Talking about contentment. Uh, One of my favorite Puritans, a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs, defined contentment as that, uh, let's see, that, that inward, sweet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to, and delights in God's, father, God's wise fatherly disposal in every condition. What a wonderful, that, that, that definition says, I know Christ is all I need and I'm gonna act like that, I'm gonna believe that, I'm gonna f- delight in that even as I submit to what God is doing and trust that he will work. So when you feel like God is against you, remember the faithfulness of his promises and draw near to him, Remember, recollect those things. Well, there's a sixth pursuit. When it feels like God is against you, as we we're learning, looking over Jeremiah's shoulder here, what do you do when, you, when it feels like God is against you? Number six, think of God as one who does not afflict from the heart. Think of God as one who does not afflict from the heart. Look at verse 33. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. Well, We know from this passage, in fact if you just look down at verses 37 and 38, that God is sovereign over all things, that his providence is is working and that this affliction, this discipline, all that's going on in Jeremiah's day is ordained by God as a part of his good plan. And the Bible affirms God's sovereignty here. We know that God allows suffering and pain and death and difficulties of many kinds as a part of that sovereign plan. We know even that he disciplines his people, even severely for our good. We, we, we know the, the verse in Hebrews that God disciplines us so that we might share in his holiness. It's, it's for a good purpose. But what's interesting is, in the midst of all this, we we might be wondering, as God afflicts, as he allows suffering, as he ordains these hard things in life, what's his disposition? What's his heart in all of this? What is the heart of God in afflicting his people? Is 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 he like a Joe Stalin or an Adolf Hitler who afflicted their people, right? Is that what we're talking about? No, not at all. He's more, is he more like a, a parent in anger venting their, their displeasure in physical discipline because he's had enough? That's why we need this verse. Look at verse 33. He does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. Uh, literally in the Hebrew it says God doesn't afflict from the heart. He doesn't afflict from his heart. That's not his disposition. His disposition is for the good of his people. His disposition is for the redemption of his people. The affliction is a means to their good. And that's God's heart. Uh, The the word there means God does not intend to cause turmoil. He doesn't afflict from the heart. He does it, as we know, for their good. You know, I I think uh, of this verse, I think of, you know, being a parent. uh, My kids are all teenagers now, but our youngest, several years ago, when he was probably 10, 11 years old, uh, he was running around our yard. That's what boys do. And of course, they don't have shoes on because They never wear shoes. And uh, he cut the corner a little bit too sharply on our flower bed and his heel came down right on the metal edging of our flower bed and it just went right through his foot. And uh, you medical people understand like you know, heals and, and how they heal and whatnot, and it's really challenging. We got a great children's hospital up in Fort Worth, went up to Fort Worth, and uh, he was in a lot of pain, and, and the medications they were giving him weren't looking, and, and they're sitting there trying to stitch up these, these deep, deep wounds in his heel, and he's just screaming and crying. You know, I'm on the bottom end of him trying to hold his legs down. My wife's on the top end with her arm around her trying to comfort him, and he's, I remember my son just pounding the, um, the table in pain, and everything in you on a parent just wants to say stop. Enough! I can't watch this. We're, we're, we're gonna—we're leaving. We'll go to McDonald's and get a happy meal. and It'll be fine, right? <laughs> but you can't do that, can you? I know that that pain is necessary for his healing. Uh, so he healed up from that a few months later um, because of the nature of it. One of the stitches got left in there. It got infected, and before you know it, he had this big cyst growing in his in his heel. We gotta go back. Now we gotta do surgery. So there we are sitting in surgery. We gotta put him under and take him in there. We gotta do the whole thing all over again and he's sitting there weeping again. What is this all about? And again, heart, the heart of any parent goes, no, we're just gonna, we're gonna stop this. But I know that the pain that I'm about to inflict on my son is not my heart, is it? That's not my heart. My heart is his healing. My heart is his good and, and I can't help but think that the heart of God, our heavenly father is similar that he doesn't afflict us from the heart. He afflicts us in order to do good. He afflicts us for our healing. He afflicts us for redemption. And we need to remember that, that that God's pain for his children is always redemptive in nature for our good. When, When you feel like God is against you, remember the heart of God. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for these moments to just remember what your heart is who you are and your character and that we can turn to you in the rawness of our emotion. You call us to come to you as a child comes to his parent. Lord, thank you that, that we know the redeemer, that we know that you are for us, not against us because of Christ and we can rehearse those promises and recall your character in moments when it feels otherwise. Lord, thank you that you are redeeming all of our pain for you, good, your good purposes. Help us to trust you Help us to lean on Christ's sufficiency when we have no other option to quiet our hearts and wait in trust and worship because we know that waiting is good for our souls. Father, will you work these things in our hearts for the honor of your great name and for the glory and and, uh, exalting of your gospel to all the world, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.